This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. I'm particularly excited for today's episode, as I am all episodes, because I bring up this topic and the subject matter frequently. And when I was driving down I-15 the other day, I saw one of their signs and I say, I have to reach out to these people and ask them very good questions about what they do. So I have with me today, Wes Swenson, who is the CEO and founder of Nova Data Centers, and that's Nova with two Vs, located and headed out of Utah County here in the state of Utah. And I wanted to have Wes on because I am guilty of and frequently mentioning data centers as a user of water. And I realized that for me to make those statements, I probably need to learn a little bit more. And it sounds like Wes has some very exciting things happening with his data centers that I think will maybe help bring some nuance to the discussion. So Wes, could you give our listeners a little bit of kind of a background of who you are and kind of how you came to your position at Nova? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. So, you know, I started Nova in late 2018, early 2019. And it's really a continuation or an evolution of what I did prior. I was the CEO and founder of a company called C7 Data Centers, which I had been involved in and ran from 2007 to 2017. And it was then acquired by DataBank in 2017. So, you know, I've been in the industry for many years. And prior to that, I've been in the technology industry in various enterprises from security, software, you name it. I've been in it since I was out of high school and in college. So been around technology my entire life. Great. And were those ventures, your early ventures here in Utah or were they in other parts of the country? And then kind of how did you find yourself here in the state of Utah? Yeah, other parts of the country as well as Utah. So, you know, I grew up here in Utah and I've lived here my entire life. I've had companies in other locations, but this has always been my home. So, you know, I'm very familiar with your subject matter, which is water. Yeah. I was indoctrinated at a young age on Stop the Drip, I think was the campaign when I was a kid. Nice. Good, good. All right. I like it. And the reason I ask that is that, you know, we have listeners who are increasingly across the country and even some international listeners. And so I don't think it's broadly as known out there in the world about what a presence Utah has made in the last 10 or 15 years on the tech side. You know, we've got Silicon Slopes, we've got a huge amount of growth down in Lehigh for, for technology companies. And so it is definitely a growing part of the state's economy and a growing a force and presence here in the state. And so I kind of was curious that what's it like to go somewhere else and come home and have a cool incubator space for you to come to? (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, you know, Utah is unique for that. I mean, we had a lot of heavy industry here over 30 years ago. And I mean, if you think about it, the internet is about 30, 32 years old and it's actually really young. And I, I was young when I started out with WordPerfect 
in the late 80s and you know just kind of evolved with a lot of the companies in the tech space and I've kind of seen it grow out of nothing into something quite substantial so I mean it, it is hard to relate sometimes but it is it is unique here in the fact that we don't have a lot of other heavy industry big manufacturing companies and not to say we don't have some but tech is is really big here in Utah if if people have not visited here in some time it's it's quite explosive yeah, I mean, even uh, even I would just say in the last three years or five years, it's pretty apparent, which is which is it's you know it's exciting, it's interesting to see how states grow and evolve and and kind of meet the contemporary time. So, it makes total sense that we would develop a tech industry. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, we're we're fairly landlocked, right? We have great tone, and you know, I think the attractiveness of the quality of life. Here, if you enjoy outdoor pursuits, it's it's incredible. Yeah. Okay. So I want to talk about Nova data centers in particular here in a minute. But before we kind of get into what makes your facilities unique, could you just kind of give us like a one-on-one elevator pitch of a kind of like what is the role and function of a data center? I mean, I believe it's you know a word that gets thrown around quite regularly. You know, it's definitely in like our common parlance, but like what does the, a data center actually do? Like what is its form and function? How does it help society? Yeah, so everything that we do with our phones, our computers, every every time you make a search on Google, every time you buy something in the future, every time you drive a car, that data is collected. And that is how it's processed. That's how your transactions are processed. That's how you get data. It's how you send it, retrieve it. So that data, it actually has to physically sit somewhere. So you know, clients, enterprises, they locate servers, computer servers, similar to your laptop, and they locate storage devices as well as network equipment, et cetera. And they have to put it in a facility where they can guarantee almost 100% of the time, if not 100% of the time, that regardless of environmental factors, such as an earthquake, a grid outage, that your your system will stay up. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, just like when you put a laptop on your lap, it gets hot. And that's the same thing with servers. So to keep them at optimal performance, we have to keep them at a certain operating temperature. And that, that cooling system also has to be redundant in case of an outage that something causes you know, a connection or even a piece of equipment in the data center to go down. So it's what we call N plus one or two N, that there is redundancy through every piece of equipment that if one fails, another one is there to, to pull it back up so that we have 100% uptime. And that's so that, you know, everybody can get to the data they need. And that, you know, if you think about it, in terms of how the internet has grown and how we use applications, it it just it's growing at an exponential rate. And it's very difficult to keep up on it. And every day we see new applications. You know, we haven't even gotten really into the thick of autonomous driving. Something like that as an example is probably 40 to ter- 50 terabytes of data storage for every eight hours of driving. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, so you're, you're, 
Yeah, you're talking an enormous amount of data. When you go from 4K to 8K video, you're, you're talking almost two and a half times the size of a file. So, you know, data centers have to grow with that. And, and we hear a lot about the cloud. Well, the cloud is not some existential being. It actually has to sit physically somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, it's just massive how, how large it's grown from 30, 32 years ago. So can you give us a little bit of like a physical idea of kind of like what is the relationship of a size of the data center to the amount of data it can store? So we can kind of get a physical picture of how much space these places take and kind of, you know, make that amorphous cloud image more on the concrete. So, you know, like per square foot, like how much data do you store, you know, some some kind of thoughts on how big your buildings are, et cetera. Yeah, I'll try to put it in relative terms. So the average data center in the United States is probably about 10,000 feet of data center space. That's the average that has been built, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years in multiple cities. So if you think about your home at maybe two or 3,000 square feet, and you think of a data center at 10,000 feet, that will give you a relative idea of what it has been in the past. In the last three to five years, for instance, our, our one in West Jordan, the first building alone is 330,000. Whoa, that's a 300% increase, a 30, 330% increase. <laughs> I mean, and, and we used to build on, you know, five acre sites and the one in West Jordan is 100 acres. So wow. eventually that campus will be 1.5 million square feet Whoa. of data center space. So if, if you can kind of relate it to that, if you think about it in terms of power that we consume, it used to be that a 10,000 square foot home would use, say, a megawatt of power, you know, per day, per month, et cetera. It's hard to relate that to a home, but to give you an idea, an average power bill in Utah for a megawatt for an enterprise like ours would be, let's say, sixty to $70,000 a month okay. for a megawatt versus, say, your $200 a month bill for your home. A campus like Nova's in West Jordan will be, you know, almost 150 megawatts. Oh, um, wow. So, oh, wow. Yeah, so you're talking... Sorry. <laughs> no. yeah, this is no, real is. time. This is exactly why I wanted to have this discussion. Is I, yeah. I, don't, I need to know more about these. <laughs> no, it is, it, it is. It is. Oh, wow. And, and if you think about... So we have a measurement that we use in data centers of, of how much a server consumes in power and then how much it takes to cool that server. Mm-hmm. And without getting too complicated about it, but on average, the industry has used about a half a kilowatt to cool a kilowatt, you know, and we're down now where it's about 0.1 kilowatt to cool a one kilowatt. So we've gotten much more efficient about our cooling systems, but it has a lot to do with, you know, where you locate it, how do you use cooling? Mm-hmm. But when you think of a power bill, it can include everything it takes to cool the data center as well as the servers. Okay. So I want to clarify that. So like a 10,000 square foot facility has historically been kind of the average size of the data center here across the country. Yeah. And that takes about one megawatt of energy per day in the month. So it's 30 yeah. megawatts a month, essentially. I, uh, one me- So it's one megawatt. So sorry, I should tell you it's 
So when I say one megawatt, that's yeah. translated from kilowatt hours to kilowatts. It's complicated. So we use, we will use like one megawatt in a 10,000 foot data center per month. Mm-hmm. So you're talking 12 megawatts per year. Sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that makes the numbers a little bit more, but yeah. a little more small. <laughs> yes. I had my calculator on. I was like, wow, that's a huge number. So they're still very big numbers though. Very big numbers. Yeah. And in that megawatt in the traditional 10,000 square foot building, does that include the half a megawatt to cool it? Or are you really consuming 1.5 megawatts of energy, both in the combination of what the data center uses and your cooling needs? Great question. So when I say a megawatt usage, that would include the cooling as well. Okay. So if you think about your, I'll try to relate it to your home. When you have a circuit at home, right? A circuit breaker, or say your living room lights, it might be a 20 amp circuit that you've got at home but you're only using 10 amps of that, but you need 20 so that you don't break the circuit, right? You don't want to overload the circuit. That works the same way in data centers. So if we build say a 200 megawatt data center, you know, the usage for the servers is probably going to be about hundred megawatts. And in our case, the cooling is going to be about 10 megawatts. Mm-hmm. So when you think of data centers, it's just like your home circuit and your throughput Emily, you'd be like, let's say a megawatt. On average, you'd be about 700 kilowatts to servers and about 300 to 350 kilowatts to cool. Okay. So like a 70-30 split when you yep. average amount. Okay. Yep. On, on average, yep. Yeah, but those are the traditional historic buildings. You're talking now, and that just one more cap on that. And a megawatt costs you between sixty and seventy thousand dollars a month for that traditional ten thousand square foot building. Yeah, so just that's for the power. Yeah. yeah, just just for the power to put some, some numbers on it every month. Yeah. But what you're telling me though is that the contemporary modern data centers of recent times, which is post five pre, you know, beyond five years. <laughs> are substantially bigger to the point of being almost 330,000 square feet. So almost a 300% increase. How many megawatts of power are those facilities using? Is is it just like one megawatt? Do you just multiply by the same percentage or are you getting power economies of scale on your power production? But what does the footprint look like for these bigger facilities? Yeah, good question. So the density is increasing. So to, I mean, it's hard to relate sometimes, but if you think about it, we used to, for every rack or a cabinet, of equipment, we used to use about two kilowatts per cabinet. This is about 10 years ago. Today, we use 15 to 20 kilowatts per cabinet. So the density of the servers are much greater now than they used to be. And the the more kilowattage they use per cabinet, the more cooling it takes in a dense form to cool Mm -hmm. that cabinet. So density is increasing as well as the size, and the size is really related to the demand. If you could just relate to the things that you have today that you didn't have five years ago. Like I have a birdhouse that has a camera on it, and it identifies bird song and takes a photo of the camera and sends me a message as to what kind of bird mm-hmm. is at the birdhouse. That did not exist five years ago. Many of the applications that we have today did not exist. Zoom, where we're recording this, did not exist five years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not in the way we use it today. So those things have changed, and it's rapidly changing. The number of applications, metaverse, gaming, streaming, 
I used to be on satellite TV five years ago, and now I've cut all the cords and I'm completely streaming on my video entertainment. That just did not exist, you know, five years ago. So the applications and the way we use it has grown exponentially over just the last five years. So it's kind of the Internet of Things. The Internet of Things, and, it, and, you know, it's hard to, like, quantify it all. But, you know, in the last few years, we produce worldwide about two and a half quintillion bytes of data per day. And okay, I'm sorry, Wes. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Quintillion. So, I feel like quintillion is like a word like cocktillion. That's not really a thing that ever actually happened. But like, really how is. big is a quintillion? I've never heard this word before. I'm assuming it has five on it because it's got it does. Cute. It does. It's like <laughs> it's. I'd have to look up at how many zeros it has exactly, but it's like I want to say I'd have to look it up, Emily. I did All have right. that off the top of my head, but. To give you an idea, today we produce anywhere from two and a half to three quintillion bytes of data per day. I estimate, and I think others do too, that we will see that in the next five years grow to 250 quintillion to 300 quintillion per day. If you think of all the things that are coming, the way we use applications and the analysis of that data from food shopping to products and customizing those products and autonomous driving and smart roads. And I mean, you just, I mean, I could go through a hundred different things that you'll probably see in the next five years. Telemetry and all of our water meters. Water (laughs) water meters, especially, right? And yeah, where, where, you know, eyeglasses that take photos automatically. And I don't, you know, things that, you know, I couldn't even dream of yet, but you will see this really, really explode on demand. And that just requires the density of the data center cannot keep up with the growth of the Uh data center, right? Even though we are building more dense data centers, it still can't keep up with the growth. Okay. I heard you say a couple awesome things in there. So first off, I asked you about how the buildings scale from 10,000 to 300,000 square feet. And you're saying it's not just square footage, but it's density. So you're consuming more power per square inch of your facility because you're trying to pack in all that data, which translates to actually a higher energy footprint, you know, right. per square foot or per, you know, per square foot. Okay. I heard you say that all the thousands of internet connected things are exponentially increasing this to where we're going to be consuming quintillion bytes. And I looked it up. Quintillion is 18 zeros. 18 so zero. it goes there you go. Thank you. million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion. So Thank we're you. out there. <laughs> we are out there. We are out there. Okay. So we have a lot coming down the pipe, so to say, you know. And by the way, nobody deletes anything, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to store it in you may want to pull up a photo from six years ago and and you're disappointed if it doesn't come up in a few seconds. And mm-hmm. if you if you think about it, it takes anywhere from 300 to 400 milliseconds to blink. So that's about how long it takes to blink. We move data across the United States in 10 to 20 milliseconds. Mm-hmm. So not only do we have to provide the power, we have to provide the cooling with redundancy, but we have to create the connectivity with redundancy so that you are getting your data as quickly as possible, right? I don't know if you remember the old days where you used to wait, you used to get that little uh, 
sand timer, right? Well, people yep. don't people don't like that. And companies lose transactions. They lose buyers if they have slow connectivity. So, you know, that's another element to it. It's like a symphony of, of all these different components that we do to deliver this type of service. And if you think about it, for our clients, it's really like an insurance policy on the 0.005% chance that something goes down that mm-hmm. they stay up. Okay. I like it. Okay. So we're kind of understanding the scale. It's a yeah. lot. <laughs> it's a lot and it's needed. Lot. And you used it, you used it in our kind of pre-conversation, but you know, you're a utility. You provide a service to the public that they're dependent on for most functions of daily life. You know? Pretty much. I mean, I would even say police, fire, hospitals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, I don't know, there's virtually nothing that's not touched by it anymore. You're like a sub-utility. You're like, like a ground sub-utility. floor of all the utilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also for relevancy for, for people, I mean, think how many devices you have in your house now that you didn't have 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, if you check your internet connection, you'll probably see a hundred devices in your home connected. It's just, it's changed. And yep, we are a utility for that type of service. All right. So now I kind of want to get into what makes Nova unique. You had mentioned that of your powerage percentage, traditionally it's like 70%-ish power consumption for your servers and 30% for cooling purposes. And you said that some of your contemporary servers have gotten down to kind of more in the 10, 20 percentage. Before we get into what you're doing differently, how are traditional data centers cool today? Like what are the what are the general practices? You know, is it HVAC systems? Like give us, give us the give us the 101 about how we cool all this hot data. Yeah, so I'll just take you back in history a little bit. So the internet's about 30, 32 years old, right? Since the Netscape browser arrived as we know it. So it started out, how did we do this in the past? We started out in a closet of a room, then, then data centers moved to a room on a floor of a building, and then the whole floor of the building, and then an entire building, and now we see campuses, data center campuses. So where that came from kind of tells you how that how do we do this and how was it done in the past? So it really was a an offshoot, if you will, of building HVAC systems, right? So the way the way you would cool and heat a corporate building is really how how this developed for data centers. Because mm-hmm. they're just part of the infrastructure that was there already. We're kind That's of right. Yeah. And it, yeah. And, and it uses a lot of the same systems that the buildings did, you know, to manage their HVAC systems. And then it's evolved over the last couple of decades to where the scale and the density require different approaches. But for the most part, it's very similar technology, like evaporative units, positive and negative pressure in a building. You know, like if you go in a corporate building, they always have a vestibule anymore because they need that pocket of air to trap the other pocket of air because air goes where you let it go. So mm-hmm. now when you walk in a building, you'll notice sometimes the doors want to close themselves, right? That's the pressure of the building. All of those sciences are, you know, really similar to what they are for data center. So it really is, it's it's just evolved a little bit from building HVAC. It's more efficient, certainly, than it used to be in the past, but that's really where it came from. 
And HVAC systems typically are water intensive, correct? Like if you're using traditional, a traditional mechanism, you mentioned the evaporative units. If you have a just a big old condo unit or a big old commercial building, you know, those systems typically use a lot of water, right? My understanding. Yeah, Yeah, that's correct. So that's, you know, generally the most efficient system is to do evaporative. And in drier environments, like the Southwest, evaporative is very effective because we have low humidity levels and you have higher evaporative. So they're more optimal in drier environments, but they can work anywhere. But yeah, that is that is the kind of de facto standard is using water. And water, water is relatively cheap. In many cities, they just charge you by the size of the pipe mm-hmm. and not necessarily metered water. It just kind of depends where you're at. But for the most part, water has been seen as a, a fairly cheap resource or a material. Okay. And so going back to the 10,000 square foot data center, the traditional data center, before we get into these hyper big ones that, you know, are requiring today, you know, I, I've got the one megawatt of power a month for 60 or $70,000. Do you know what like the gallon consumption is of, of, a, of a data center like that size, that traditional size? Yeah. So back in say 10,000 foot data center would consume anywhere from 15 to 20 million gallons of water per year. Per year, 15 to 20 million gallons per year. And so just as you move to the more dense, bigger buildings from the 10,000 square foot buildings to the 330,000 square foot buildings, do we get the same non-proportional increase in water usage as we saw with our power usage because you're getting denser? Or what is it you do to the water picture when you start scaling up to these bigger, denser data centers? Yeah, so today they have improved quite a bit on their efficiency. So that same 10,000 foot data center today might use five to seven million gallons of water. So they have gotten much more efficient. Generally now the water systems will loop the water around a few times. So it's not going into the wastewater system immediately. Mm -hmm. So they'll regenerate that same water. So let's say you put a gallon in it's going to move that gallon around until, you know, say 40% of it's lost to evaporation, but they'll move that through the system a few times before they put it back to wastewater. So the water systems today are much more efficient than they were, say, a decade ago. And do they just put that water back into the the municipal wastewater system? So if you bought it from Jordan Valley, we go to Jordan Valley's treatment plant or wherever the the waste the local municipality is, it would just go straight into their municipal system typically? Yeah, it's a good question. So yeah, so it, it depends on the region you're in. We look at a lot of different sites across the United States and everybody has their nuances, but typically what you would do is you would run the water, you pull the water out of a culinary system comes into yours, you're treating it with chemicals for, say, legionnaires, other bacteria, right? Because this is going into an air system. And then you also, depending on where you're at, you have to treat it for hard water and minerals or what we call liquid rocks. So (laughs) you have to Mm -hmm. treat that water with various chemicals or salt or whatever it may be so that the water can move through your system efficiently and reduce your maintenance periods, right? That you're not having to scrape off calcification and other things. So what you do is you run the water through, 
generally it's going to cycle through a few times and then anywhere from 40 to 50% of it would be lost to evaporation. That water can only be dealt with so many times within the system and then it does go into the wastewater system. So it's so degraded, you can't use it through the system. Like it starts much. to build up calcification, or so that's why it just isn't the, the quality has gone down to a point exactly. where exactly the use quality it. is reduced, and you have to push it into the wastewater system. In many locations, and it's it varies, but most of the time, that water does go into wastewater, and it cannot be reused as culinary. It can be used for irrigation and other purposes, but generally. Unless you put in a really expensive treatment plant, that water is not suitable for culinary once you put it back. Okay. Yeah. Because that is one of the questions we have here in the state of Utah that, you know, I probably need to do another water reuse question. Because one of the things we talk a lot about is water reuse, and it definitely needs to be like a tool in our tool belt and make a lot of sense. But I think what a lot of uh, missing nuance sometimes is if we continually reuse water, which is something we should promote where it makes sense, we're not putting as much water through the wastewater treatment plants. And those treatment plants often release treated effluent into natural water bodies. And for example, in the Jordan River, during peak times in August, one third of the flow is actually wastewater treatment, like effluent from wastewater treatment plants too. And so it's, it's one sweater. You got, when you pull it, you know, you won't pull one side, something else happens. And so it's helpful for me to understand where the water goes once you guys are done with it. Cause that informs, you know, a whole another bevy of options. And of course, I mean, we, we, you know, when we do use water, I mean, we don't personally, but when you do use it as a data center, you are trying to get the most out of it as possible for evaporation before you mm-hmm. have to put it into wastewater. And, a lot of companies are making really significant improvements in that, but the fact is you're still using a lot of water. You're still losing it to evaporation mm-hmm. and it still has to be put into wastewater. Even if you, you still are going to have to use now new cycles of energy to clean it, right? Mm-hmm. Regardless of what you're going to use it for. Yeah. You have a consumptive component and then we don't get back what we evaporate and then you've got an additional energy intensive component of moving it and treating it and releasing it. So it's a, it's, it's, it's not a passive use of water. It is not. Okay, great. That's super helpful. So we've got 15 to 20 million gallons in our traditional 10,000 square foot facility five years ago. Today, we're more in the seven to five to 7 million gallons per year, per year. Yep, per, year. per year, five to seven million gallons per year for that same 10,000 foot facility. As we scale, that water use stays kind of in about the same proportionally. So if we had five to seven and a 10,000 and we're moving to a 300,000 square foot building, are we using like 15 million gallons today for yeah, those I mean, big guys? Yeah, we would estimate for our campus when it's complete in West Jordan, if we were to go with the most efficient water systems and and give it the benefit of doubt that they got a, a bit more efficient, we estimate we would consume about 300 million gallons of water per year Okay. in West Jordan if, if we did go that route. So that is okay. with like very efficient systems. And I should say too, Emily, that, you know, when you, when you do decide to put a data center somewhere, Site selection can also make a big difference on water usage, like the use of ambient air, what we call free cool. Mm -hmm. Things like that can reduce your water consumption where you're using just the natural air, the the temperature of that air to cool data centers. 
So mm-hmm. site selection matters substantially when you're trying to conserve resources. Okay, great. And I'm just trying to look at like how much an average home gallons. I think it's around 30,000 gallons a year. 30,000 a year. Yeah, it okay. kind of depends, but Americans use more. Of course we do. You know, I think our, <laughs> I think I've seen like the rest of the world's like 14 gallons a day and we're we're like twice that. Our showers are longer, everything. Mm-hmm. We just we flush the toilet more. I mean, we just use a lot more water, but and and I could be wrong on that, but I think it's around thirty thousand gallons of water per year. Okay, so if you have a three hundred and thirty square foot modern dense data center, and you're using three hundred thousand gallons per year, if using the traditional practices, not moving to what we're doing at Nova, that it would give us the and we use thirty thousand per home. That's about the equivalent of ten thousand homes. That's correct. So these are, you know, in thinking about our water allocations and trade-offs, you know, one big, big data center is worth a small city. So pretty much. Yeah. I mean, they, they are, they are water monsters and most of the water that they do consume is like, if you go down to the Phoenix area, most of it's coming from groundwater, Uh you know, from, from hundred million year old aquifers. So, you know, which they're hoping refill, right? But yeah, that's, <laughs> we would drain the lakes pretty quickly yeah. if, if we weren't using groundwater and other storage. Okay. And this is just on an upward trajectory. <laughs> yeah. We're going to continue to use them more. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yep. Okay. Which is a great transition to what are you doing differently with your Nova centers to differentiate you from a traditional data center and your cooling and water use needs? Yeah. So we, we, for the last, you know, even the the former company I had that was acquired, we've been perfecting water-free cooling systems. It's driven by a lot of issues. One, one fact is that we live here and we're very familiar with drought. And I really believe the drought has been here for 20 or 30 years. It's just, we haven't noticed it as much because the population has increased so much, you know, the last decade. And and that's put more pressure on everything else. But we're really sensitive to the fact that water is really a scarce resource here. And if you think about it, so the data center I'm building in West Jordan, we will invest about a billion dollars of capital into it. Why why would I build a data center at that big of an expense to rely on a resource like water that may become very scarce in the future? Or very and expensive, one and both. Both are going to happen. That's right. Mm -hmm. We're very expensive. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about what I mentioned earlier, our whole thesis is to reduce points of failure, right? And it doesn't make sense to build a system around a very scarce resource like that. So it is one of the drivers, but just our sensitivity to, you know, the environment here, it's a big, it's a big deal for us to be really sensitive to the environments we build in. So for us, we have a water-free system and the way it goes, it's a lot of different things that go into that, but how do you do water-free? Well, I'll, I'll give you an example. You don't probably, if you have a central air system at home, it is not using water to cool your home. If you have a modern central air system, 
It is a combination of fans and refrigeration. And it's very similar to what we do at Nova on a much larger scale. But for instance, our site in West Jordan, we chose that site because it sits at about 5,300 elevation. And the buildings are angled in such a way that we pull the cool winds coming off the ochres and into the valley. And we use the free air, we clean it before it goes in the data center. But we use that free air, you know, anytime it's below, say, 72 degrees, we're just using fans to pull in that cold air. That cold air chills a closed loop liquid system. So there's no evaporation. It's just a, it's a set of pipes that have a combination of liquids in it. We chill that liquid and then that chills the coils in the air conditioning units. And that chills the air that blows into the data center and it's, it's closed loop. So we then use, if you've ever gotten out of the pool on a really hot day and you get out and you feel kind of cold, mm-hmm. right? As you get out, even though it's warm, that's a heat exchange process. And we do that same heat exchange process where we take the hot air and we blow it against uh, coils, copper cold coils, which then regenerates more cold air into the system by that heat exchange process. So we're using some very simple thermodynamics to produce more cold air with hot air. So if it goes above 70 degrees, then we use a combination of fans and refrigerant. If it goes above, say, 90 degrees, then we're using total refrigerant. And Mm -hmm. those days are much higher for us now, given some of the climate change we've seen. You know, when I first started doing data centers over 15 years ago, we saw maybe 10 days here in Utah at 100 degrees. Now we see 20 to 30. And we have to build for those peaks in our cooling system. We can't build for the average. We have to build for the highest peaks that we think we will see in the number of days. But we we don't use any EVAP for our cooling systems, no water whatsoever. It's all a combination of really just science using ambient air and other systems to create cold air. So it does seem like you're siding then. If it's below 72 degrees, you're actually just using the air outside as you're like to use in your heat exchange system. And then it's above 72 you're using your refrigerant power or your, yeah. your refrigerant. Okay. So, so siting it really does matter. I mean, it makes sense that you probably want to make your data centers like close to people and close to infrastructure and stuff. But like, do you look at cooler locations? You know, I mean, West Jordan's a population center, but like there's also probably some scrub brush out in the mountains. That's probably cooler. Like, do you guys ever consider location location? Yeah, it's a good question. So when you choose a site for a data center, you take a lot of things into account. So liquefaction from earthquakes, availability of power, mm-hmm. it's reasonable to access and, you know, personnel, right, for labor. But then also, if you think about the internet, the way it's really constructed today, we have what we call long haul fiber, And long-haul fiber is where, you know, we're really moving data at high speeds, basically the speed of light. The farther you are off that freeway, that internet freeway, the slower the transaction takes. So you have to be near 
really fiber freeways. And most of the fiber in the United States for long haul is either built on interstate systems, some highways, and some railway. So that is, I mean, I know we hear it a lot in Utah when we think about history of the railroads, but Utah is the crossroads of the West when it comes to fiber, because we are one of the very few states that has a freeway interstate system that goes north, south, east, and west. Mm-hmm. And you think of I-70, I-15, and I-80, and that's where most all of the long-haul fiber sits. In the, it's really central in Utah. So we can't be too far off of the main road for connectivity to have the high-speed transactions that our clients require. So it's not as simple as just going and finding the coldest site mm-hmm. uh, because power may be too expensive to get there. Fiber may be too slow. Labor may be too difficult to get. So you do have to take a lot of things into account when you do site selection. But when we do it, we we do go to a lot of research, like even the angle of the buildings to not give them too much Southern exposure you know, for the equipment, to put them under stress. I mean, there are a lot of things that we think through when we do choose a site and how we position the buildings and the equipment. Okay. And needing to be closer to power is good because you still are going to have a power load. And so, you know, with your water-free systems, where does that, in the traditional traditional facilities that was 70% power, 30% cooling, what is your refrigerant non-water system cost or, 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 you know, what's its power footprint? You know what? It is actually comparable to the cost of a water system. Okay. It's not actually more expensive. Um, it just takes more, more thought. Mm-hmm. And what you're not using in water, you're using in electricity, right? To mm-hmm. power those refrigerant systems. But when you're running a water system, you're also running electricity to run those as well. So it's really kind of an offset. But it really, for us, it doesn't cost us more to do a water-free system. It's just not traditional mm-hmm. to do it. It is uh, out of the comfort zone for a lot of providers. And you will get sometimes clients that are not used to it. And maybe it's too far out of the norm for them, but for the most part, clients love it. And yeah. we, we can prove that it works I and mean, they can actually see it in action. And like I say, we've been doing this for a long time. The last one, the last main campus I had was in Bluffdale. And it was very difficult to get water in the Bluffdale area. And even in West Jordan, where we're located now, most of the water has to be pushed uphill and put into storage tanks for the residents up there. So, mm-hmm. you know, water is not a real practical resource. When you have topographical or elevated sites, it's it's very difficult unless you have a reservoir, you know, right above you. It's pretty difficult. So, and it is odd too that the best places for evaporative, like the Southwest, are the worst places for water. Yes, <laughs> yes. But, <laughs> so we have that, that dichotomy that for the most effective evaporative systems, it's best to be in the Southwest, but in the Southwest, we have the least amount of water. Got it. This is fascinating. This is very, very interesting. So I, I will probably come back to the water stuff in just a second because I think it's, yeah. it's, it's helpful. But I'm also, you know, 
one of the other themes that we talk about a lot, and you've actually hit on it quite a, quite a bit, is, is this concept of like redundancy and like distributed infrastructure and kind of like how we make our infrastructure more resilient, which is the new buzzword, but I understand why, you know, to these extreme conditions that we're going to be experiencing. I mean, the climate change is real. We've experienced it here in the state. Like there's, you know, we are not going to have the same conditions that we've had the past 20 years. And so, you know, I think that's helpful from water perspective, from an energy perspective, all kinds of perspectives. And I also think that lessons we learn in one field can inform actions in another field. And so what are you guys doing to bring in that redundancy? Like, are you having, you know, like obviously power is an incredibly important piece of the infrastructure or or a service that you need consistently and you've built in redundancies. How are you doing that? Are, Are you having solar panels? Are you, you know, what does that look like when you say to have a redundant system? What does that kind of translate into to make you more secure against a fire or earthquake or an interruption in service? Yeah, good question. So when we build a data center building, it's not just a typical building. So, for instance, the one in West Jordan, in most places, it sits on eight inches of a concrete floor, then 12 inches for generators. Our exterior walls are 14 inches thick so Mm -hmm. that we get a high R value. And then within the data center, you know, there are almost eight, uh, almost three feet of insulation between the exterior walls and the interior data center. So just like your home, you know, we're trying to insulate that that cooling and isolate heat. So, you know, we do things like that. We do renewable energy programs with the power company. So you brought up a good point, solar, wind, whatever it may be to give you an idea, just to power my data center in the daytime, doesn't even include having energy storage at night. But to do, say, a solar input to ours, we would need to have four to 500 acres mm-hmm. just of solar, just to power our data center. We, we prefer to work with local power companies, local communities to put in to the system for renewable energy programs and promote that more commonly rather than just do it for ourselves. So we prefer to do what they call RECs, Renewable Energy Credit System, where we're buying power at a higher cost, but we're committing to 100% renewable. So that's what we do. We feel like that's a better overall impact on the community rather than being somewhat selfish about it. So we use 100% renewable energy. How do we get the redundancy? So if you think about the server in the data center, you know, it's connected up to a couple of different battery systems. So we charge those batteries through the grid and the computer systems are always connected to a battery. The batteries are then connected to a generator system so that if the grid power fails, the batteries keep the computers up, the generators restart and they re-energize the batteries as they're being drained. So that's how, so it's very isolated. Mm-hmm. Basically, from if the grid has a power failure or somebody hits a power pole or there's something more catastrophic, the data center is actually very isolated. And we run that power through generators and a combination of battery systems so that there's really no downtime for the client. So you have to build. And that's why I say when you put a billion dollars into the campus, where's that money going? 
it's not really the buildings or the land. It's really all the redundant equipment, like battery systems. You know, you have to have a lot of switch gear, electrical gear to handle that kind of voltage. So we have a lot of switch gear and then we have a lot of generators that will automatically kick on and refuel those batteries and also carry the cooling load. All right. And is uh, this generators gas powered? Is that how they are? What is the source? Yeah, good question. Yeah, in in Utah, we do diesel generators because it's the most stable platform for us here in Utah at this elevation. But mm-hmm. on those diesel generators, you know, they only we test them a few times a year and they kick on only during an outage. But even on emissions on those, we actually do selected catalytic reduction. So we actually install a device on the engine exhaust that cleans that emission almost by 95% before it's Like the eco-diesel? Like eco-diesel? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and like a DEF fluid, like you would put on, Mm -hmm. you know, you put in a diesel car. Yep, very very same concept. And we do that with our diesel generators. And we put those what we call SCR, selected catalytic reduction on our generators at every site, regardless of whether local code requires it. We just do it as, uh, you know, our own sustainability efforts to reduce mm-hmm. those carbon emissions. You can do, in some places, we are looking at doing natural gas generators. There's some argument which is worse, right? The carbon emissions from diesel or the methane emissions from natural gas. So there's trade-offs on each. Natural gas is cheaper than diesel. It has some benefits that way. And we are looking at experimenting with some new hydrogen type generators in the future. And I do think, you know, if you think about a power plant, it it will produce about a thousand to 1500 megawatts of power plant. So if you think of Nova and some of the other data centers in the area, we could end up consuming quite a bit of just one power plant mm-hmm. over time. I, I envision that data centers in the future, say five to 10 years from now, will have to produce their own fuel. Huh. Like they're going to have to be hydrogen powered. They're going to have to basically produce their own electricity in five to 10 years. That's kind of a prediction. I also think that data centers, the way we build them today will probably change in the next five to 10 years. That redundancy we've talked so much about, I could see it in the future where we just have a battery energy storage system and no generators. Mm-hmm. And the battery system is good for say four hours. And if it doesn't come back on within say two hours, the compute load is shifted to another data center with excess capacity until the data center comes back online and then the compute is reloaded into the data center when it comes back online. It's almost like you're wheeling, wheeling data. I think so. I think you're going to see, I think you'll see really sophisticated. We're planning on developing some very sophisticated systems so that we can actually avoid building data centers like we have been Uh so that they're more flexible you know, lower impact on the environment. You know, we we would rather build a simpler data center. Clients will have to move with us in that direction that, you know, most of our clients see that as well. They're, if you look at compute in general, 
and it's going to grow exponentially 100, 1,000 times in five years. It doesn't make sense to keep building these data centers like we have been. It's too much. And it, and it takes us really three to five years to bring a data center online. Mm-hmm. And it takes quite a bit of time to go through all the entitlement processes to bring a data center up. You can fast track it, but it does take a lot of time to choose a site, develop it, bring it online with everything you need. So we, we're going to have to get those lead times down better to react to the market. So I do think, see things changing quite a bit over the next decade. So regular listeners to the podcast will acknowledge and note that I have a a growing fascination with blockchain and how I, I do actually think in the water context, it, it, it when applied appropriately from how I understand it, would be incredibly helpful to aggregate th- this large amount of data that we are creating through all of our disparate, you know, systems. We have all these, you know, if we're going to push all these systems to get on telemetry, they got to send that information to a, a, a central location that can be useful and and this is not a knock on the Utah state engineer by any means, but, you know, right now there's kind of a gatekeeper issue of of who has that data. Cause right now it comes to one location, which is the state engineer, which requires the state engineer to facilitate, you know, communicating that information housing, that information, storing that information, whereas a blockchain technology could be a great way for people to, with qualifying information, share all that water data real time, real quickly in a transmutable, you know, transparent way. No, I totally agree. I, I do. Mm-hmm. I see things like that. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that shifts like that will evolve the market. And mm-hmm. today, I'm not sure that every data center has a really good idea of how much water they mm-hmm. may be using or how much, worse yet, how much are they putting into the wastewater system? Mm-hmm. Even if you live in a region that has plenty of water, you know, you're still creating an issue and that's with the wastewater. It is, it's not a harmless action. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even if you live where there's plentiful water, it still has to be treated. And Mm -hmm. when you bring it in, you're using treated water. So you're using resource. And when you put it back in the system, you're using a resource. So, I mean, I, I do think like blockchain, other technologies that allow more access to the data and to better understand it will change. And do you see that? Because you said something a few moments ago that I thought was really interesting about how we're going to eventually transition out from data centers. Because I did read this interesting article about the energy footprint of blockchain and thinking about that. And I think all the crash and the cryptocurrency stuff recently has been very interesting on this front. But it was saying how they're using blockchain, but instead of every single computer housing that block, they're kind of like letting it be a random assortment that has it at any point in time. So it's still real time shared everywhere, but only 20% of the computers that share the block are actually housing it at that minute, you know? And so they're kind of moving it around the data. Is that kind of how you think data sharing is going to go in the future? Like, are we going to get to more like a distributed, like how, how do we move away from these big houses that just house our data besides just wheeling it between each other? Yeah, I do think it will get more sophisticated over time. So if you think about it, the market's just been trying to solve a few things now, which is capacity. And there are some really adventurous companies out there, big enterprises. That So if you think about, you know, big events that we've had in compute. So the invention of the Internet, its use. And then in 2001 on 9-11, it was an example of 
data that wasn't either backed up or continuity. So meaning that when you lose a system, was it backed up? And even better yet, did you not even notice it when it went down because it was self-healing somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Right. So to you know, most companies have just barely gotten over the hump of backup of data. But the next real ground to plow is really continuity. And that's from having multiple data centers and using technology, say, as blockchain, where let's say you have a document and it's broken up into a million pieces. And there are pieces at multiple data centers or multiple servers. And when you call up that data, right, it repopulates it together. Eventually, Mm -hmm. the data today, the infrastructure layer that we sit in, physical infrastructure layer, will eventually merge with the network and the application so that they communicate together. Whereas right now we sit fairly disparate, but you will see this change over time. And you may see data centers pop in places that you didn't think they would pop up because they're trying to serve latency. So Mm -hmm. most data centers, they are cost sensitive, but it's also latency sensitive that most transactions, if they're moving at, say, anywhere from 20 to 50 milliseconds, it's more than adequate because the systems that would consume that data can't really take it in faster than that. So over time, you know, you'll see applications that require, say, two and three millisecond latency, and you'll see data centers pop up to serve that latency. Could be, you know, driving smart cities where the cars have to communicate to one another when they see a cyclist on the right. And all of those cars will be communicating through a mesh network, telling the other cars to get over two feet. That's <laughs> like, crazy. But it, but it, but it, <laughs> like if they, if they see once he's a cat in the road, it's going to communicate to all the other cars, you know, left and right, that there's a cat in the road and it's going to move those cars over to avoid hitting the cat or break entirely. So that kind of demand, if you can imagine, will change, you know, the way we use it and the and the availability of data centers, even the idea that eventually, you know, students will be able to sit in a virtual classroom. You'll probably have a room in your house. Kids will go in. It'll be a 360 degree immersive video screen and they'll be in the classroom and every movement will will be as if they're there. And to do that, you need a lot of computing power. Yeah. And you need really low latency transactions, but you need redundancy, right? Because it's not enough anymore that it went down, right? We all know pretty well when something goes down. And, you know, we're trying to solve that with our clients and partners all the time for that kind of resiliency. But the more sophisticated the applications get, the more pressure there is to continue high redundancy. So, you know, I always compare data centers to more like cruise ships. We are not speedboats. It takes us a pretty big turning radius to dock the boat. And we we don't just move on a dime. It's just, these are really very capital intensive and just a lot of entitlements that we have to go through. And they just, they're really more like cruise ships. And so, you will, just like you see cruise ships, they evolve. Now they've got racing tracks on them and, 
right? Mm-hmm. And it used to be just a swimming pool. Same thing. You, you're you're going to see us. You're going to see us have all sorts of really cool features over the next decade, but it does take time. Yeah. And I don't mean to be disparaging of cruise ships, but I also think racing tracks on the ocean are maybe a sign or symptom of end stage capitalism. I don't know. I, think, well, <laughs> I, I would agree. They're, they're like both sides of it you could interpret to be quite dystopian. So, yeah. yeah. We're so we're, bored. We have to build our own roads. On I know. The ocean. We're so bored on the ocean, <laughs> on a cruise ship, and I need a race that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, you, yeah. I mean, that is, but it takes time. But it is where we're going. I mean, I mean, but that's it. I mean, those things exist and we have to, I, like, I think you mentioned earlier in the, in the conversation is, you know, you're, we're data centers or a lot of, a lot of a lens to be society is a byproduct of where we are, you know, you know, but for our desire and insatiable need for constantly be connected and for both personal and, and necessary needs, we would not have data centers and yeah, that's no, going to true. continue. Yeah, we really are a byproduct of, of consumerism or data dataism or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. We we really are a byproduct, but at the same time, we are trying to build smarter, mm-hmm. much more efficient data centers than we used to. You know, even at our data center in West Jordan, you know, we have robots, we have autonomous drones, things that weren't really possible even three years ago for monitoring and to detect anomalies in the cooling systems so that we can better predict issues with them, things like that, we we couldn't have done it just even a few years ago. So, you know, we are trying to use it for as much good as we possibly can. And like I say, we we live where we build data centers and we're extremely sensitive. We're not some corporate behemoth that it's just, you know, a mark on a spreadsheet. We really do care about where we're at and what impact we're having on the area that we've developed one in. So we, at least myself, I'm very sensitive to the perception of data centers oftentimes, and we're trying to do something new and cool. No pun, in, no pen, pun intended. <laughs> no pun intended, but that's definitely the perfect way to end this episode. <laughs> Doing something new and cool, literally, and without water. Yes. Wes, this has been fascinating. I, this has been such a helpful discussion. Data centers come up all the time in water conversations. I feel like I learned a ton. I'm excited about your activities, your new and cool activities. I think that this will not be very helpful to our listeners, but the next step is I just need to come see your facility because this sounds amazing. I want to see the drones. I want to see the robots. I, I want, they look so cool. <laughs> yeah, please. They really are something to see. If anybody ever gets a chance to see one, they really should. They are very enlightening. And if you want to see where the actual internet lives, it's these data centers. I mean, they are, they're the pipes, they're the plumbing of the internet. And they really are really something to see of their scale. It's, it's quite shocking. Yeah. Great. Okay, Wes, well, we'll be, we'll be in touch. I'd love to see how things are going as you guys evolve, as you get your campus, your big campus up and built. You know, maybe we can check back in and see how you're continuing to evolve and and meet the moment. And we appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Andrew Humphreys. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening.